Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for tonight, the opportunity you give us once again to look into the Word of God. There is no greater joy in all the earth to be able to study the truth of the gospel. To understand who you are and what you've done is so great. And to be able to look at the Old Testament and study men and women who were committed to you and following you, Lord, what a joy to see their faith, their commitment, their strength, especially a man like Job who went through so many losses and heartaches and pain. And yet, Lord, you did a great work in his life. There's so much for us to learn. We have just barely scratched the surface on this man's life. So many chapters yet to cover, and yet, Lord, we're grateful for what you've taught us so far. And tonight, Lord, once again, we ask that you'd open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, to be able to understand and see the things that are important for us to grasp, things that will drive us closer to you, things that will enable us to live for you and your glory every single day, and that, Lord, when we face difficulties, hardship, pain, disaster, we would know how to respond in a way that puts you on display. That's what Job did. And, Lord, we want to learn from him so that we can put you on display every moment of every day of our lives. So teach us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Got your Bible, Job chapter 4 and Job chapter 5. We're going to cover two chapters tonight as we begin to understand Eliphaz and how he begins to counsel Job. Now, all of us in our lives are in need of godly counsel. There are times in our lives where we need to receive godly advice on what to do, on where to go. It might be because we want to get married. And so we have premarital counseling. And I've always said that people don't need premarital counseling. They need postmarital counseling. Because after they get married, they realize all the things that they didn't know about the other person, right? And so postmarital counseling is always good to go through as well, to be able to understand how to handle conflict, how to handle relational issues, how to handle the in-laws, all those kind of things. All of us are in need of godly counsel. We have children, need wisdom on how to raise those children. And we need people to guide us through those things. All of us are in need of great godly counsel. And the Word of God is the standard by which we give and receive counsel. In fact, the psalmist said these words in Psalm 119, verse number 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. In other words, the testimonies of God, the statutes of God, the the law of God truly is the ultimate counselor. There are things that God has said. God is the ultimate counselor himself. Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. So he is the chief counselor. And so the words that he has given to us give us wisdom on how to get through life. And so The psalmist says that God's testimonies are so great that they are his counselors. The Bible also says in verse number 105, Psalm 119, 
your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, God's word is going to guide us. It's a lamp to my feet, a guide to my path. It's going to take me through life's difficulties, life's trials, life's daily challenges. But it's God's word that does that. And then over in Psalm 119, verse number 130, the unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. In other words, when God's word is opened, when God's word is unfolded, when God's word is studied, it gives me light. It shows me which way to go, right? So if we're going to give godly counsel, it's going to come because of what God's word actually does say. In fact, the the Bible gives us a whole book on godly counsel. It's called the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is all about counseling people through difficult situations. No greater book to study with your young people than to help them understand the book of Proverbs because in it is all kinds of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. In there, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 25, verse number 11, like apples of gold and studies of silver is the word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And then over in Proverbs 27, verse number 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And then over in Proverbs chapter 19, verse number 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Accept counsel. Listen to discipline that you might be wise the rest of your days. The book of Proverbs is filled with verses like that. So we know that God's word is the ultimate counselor. And godly counsel will always move you into and through and around all that God's word says. And so one of the worst things we can receive is bad counsel, right? Bad counsel destroys many people's lives. And bad counsel usually comes in two arenas. One, because I want to talk to you about my experiences, okay? And somehow my experiences relate to you. Or my perceptions, things I perceive happening, but in reality, they are not happening. That's bad counsel. So enter Eliphaz. Eliphaz is a man who counsels based on his experience and his perceptions. And that is always bad counsel. It doesn't mean that everything Eliphaz says is bad. No. No, that's what makes bad counseling so bad. There are some good things sprinkled all around it, which makes you think it's really, really good. But in all reality, it's bad counsel. So enter Eliphaz into the life of Job. It has been seven days of silence. Job and his friends, or Eliphaz and his two friends, came to sit with Job. It tells us in chapter 2 that when they saw Job, they wept. What would cause them to weep when they saw him? 
the Bible tells us, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him as their friend. His, his face and body was so full of sores, he was unrecognizable to them. They began to weep. But the Bible says they came to sympathize with him. And they came to comfort him. But ironically, none of that happened. In fact, as soon as they begin to open their mouths, comfort ends and criticism begins. Hard to imagine. And yet, that's true. And so we're going to learn a lot about what to say to people in pain and what not to say to people in pain, those who suffer, how to give them godly counsel, how to even receive that godly counsel. Eliphaz is a Temanite. He's from Timon. Timon was a place of wisdom. How do we know that? The Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 49, verse number 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Eliphaz, probably the oldest of the three men, they were all older than Job was, and so as the oldest, he would speak first. And so he begins to address Job. And as he does, he is going to talk to a man who is completely discouraged, totally depleted, in despair, beyond anything we can imagine. And because of the seven days of silence, having heard Job speak as he did last week in Job chapter 3, he believes now it's time for him to speak. And so he does. So we're going to take you through chapters 4 and 5 this evening and then help you understand some principles when it comes to counseling other people going through disaster. Okay? So here we go. Chapter 4, verse number 1. It begins by his praise of Job. This is how he begins. He's going to praise Job. It says, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Stop right there for a second. He says, you know what? Silence is not accomplishing anything here. We're not moving along in the process. We've been sitting here for seven days. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. So somebody needs to speak up. Someone needs to say something. So I guess it's going to be me. Because I'm the oldest. And I'm going to lead the way. So I'm going to speak. Behold, you have admonished many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. And you have strengthened feeble knees. What an accomplishment. He praises Job. He praises him based on the things he's accomplished. He has helped others. He has comforted other people. We can read about it over in Job, uh, excuse me, 
Job chapter 29, when it says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Verse 13 of chapter 29, the blessing of one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. Verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. In other words, Job is giving testimony as to the things that he had done for other people. Well, they knew this. They understood this. So he's praising Job for the things that he's done in the lives of other people. He's been a comforter to others. He's been eyes to the blind. He's been defeat to the lame. In other words, he's helped people who could not help themselves. He's a great man. And so Eliphaz is going to praise him based on that. Now think about this. These are three friends of Job, right? Job had helped many, many people. But only three of his friends show up to comfort him. Nobody else does. And for seven days, no one else comes. Just these three individuals. Elihu, he'll come later on down the road. And he too will speak. And we'll see where Job answers each person's comments. Except for Elihu's. Why? Because God interrupts Elihu and says, that's enough. For God had heard enough. And God then was going to speak. But that's down the road. We'll get to that point sometime in 2023, Lord willing. That's where we're going. But the bottom line is very simple. That Think about this. Only three of his friends showed up. Did he have more friends? I would assume so. If he helped everybody like he says he did and was that kind of person, and Eliphaz would be a testimony to that fact, Eliphaz praises him. Job, you've done all these things. But that praise soon turns to criticism. In verse number five, but. Ah, there goes the but. When you inject the but into the conversation, everything changes direction, right? But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Ah, Job, you have cheered others. You have helped others. You have been an encouragement to others. But you know what? You really are a hypocrite because you can't encourage yourself. You can't have any cheer in your own life. If the fear of God and your uprightness of living was a reality, because those are the things that cheer you, you would think, as it says in Luke 4, 23, physician, heal thyself. But you've yet to do that. So you can give others advice, but you can't take your own advice. In other words, he looks at Job as hypocritical. The advice he's given to others he can't accept for himself. The advice he gives to others is no good for him. In the mind of Eliphaz. So, he moves from praising him to proclaiming to him why he's suffering. Now listen carefully. Verse 7. Remember now 
whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. So let me tell you what I've seen, Job. I've seen this, that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. You have sown the seeds of wickedness and now you are suffering. Now this becomes a theme through every individual's conversation with Job because they really believe that he is suffering because of some great sin in his life. That's the only conclusion they could come to. And so everything would revolve around that whole phraseology. So he tells them, listen, whoever perished being innocent, answer, nobody. But that's not true. My friends, that's just not true. He goes on to say, by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. In other words, he's talking about how the unrighteous person suffers greatly, the righteous person, though, he doesn't. But you see, that's just not true. Because you see, wicked people sometimes never suffer in this life. The law of the harvest, Galatians 6, verse number 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that's they also reap. We understand that, right? But sometimes the law of the harvest does not take effect in wicked people's lives until they're dead. For instance, how about Psalm 73? Where the psalmist says these words. Verse number three. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set forth their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. The psalmist has questions. Why is it that the wicked prosper so much? And so, what Eliphaz is saying is not true. But he believes that the righteous prosper and the wicked are the ones who suffer. But the Bible says in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And so as you read through this proclamation by Eliphaz, he says, verse 9, By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. In other words, he's saying, look, what you're experiencing is the wrath of God. He has blown his wrath upon you. The storm has come upon you and your family. Why? Because you're wicked, Job. You're sinful. There's something about your life that's not true. And it could be the fact that you're just a hypocrite, Job, that you say one thing to those in need, but you can't live it out yourself. That's what Eliphaz is saying to him. So you move from his praise of Job 
to his proclamation to Job as to why he is suffering, to number three, his proof to Job as to how he knows this. It says in verse 12, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made all my bones shake, that a spirit passed by my face, the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the, before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die, yet without wisdom. He has a vision in the night. He's a dream. Now, some would say that this was a dream given to him by God. I don't believe that. I don't think it is. And I'm going to tell you why. Simply because nowhere in that dream was, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord God of Israel has said. There is no authority behind the words. When God would speak in the Old Testament and the prophets would use what God said, they would say, thus saith the Lord. The Lord God has spoken to me and given to me this. So they would speak with authority because God gave them that authority. That's nowhere founded. He sees the spirit. And the spirit causes him to tremble and to shake. His bones began to shake. Well, remember that when In the New Testament, when you read about the angels showing up to Zacharias, Mary, the shepherds, right, Uh, Joseph, they were all afraid. And what did the angels say? Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. There was no encouraging word from this, quote, spirit that said, do not be afraid. And after all, when angels would show up, they would show up in the form of a man. Think of it this way. When in, in the book of Genesis with Abraham, when he had his three visitors, the pre-incarnate Christ plus two other angels, they were in the form of a man. When you begin to realize this, and in, in uh, the angel that sat on the tomb was in the form of a man. So that form is not given. There is no affirmation of the fact that you should not fear because this is coming from the Lord. None of that's there. This is just a vision that he has, a dream that he has, and translates it into some vision from God to prove to Job that he has some kind of authority. You remember, Job was the greatest man in the East. That was the testimony in chapter 1. And everybody knew how great Job was. Well, now I have a chance to instruct the greatest man in the East about something that touches me. So I'm going to do that. And so he relies upon this vision. He relies upon this dream. He relies upon his experience to be able to inform Job as to why things are 
the way they are in his life. But none of that was from the Lord. So he comes to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he begins to plead with Job. In verses 1 to 7, he pleads with him because there is no help from the human realm and no help from the heavenly realm. He says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? The anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate, and there is none, or there is no deliverer. His harvest, the hungry, devour and take it to a place of thorns. And the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. He says, look, Job, there's no help. There's no help in the human realm. There's no help in the heavenly realm. And what he does is use illustrations that dig at Job. He uses the illustration of the wicked man who loses his seed because of his wickedness. Job lost all of his children. He talks about how the schemer comes during harvest time and steals the crop, a lot like the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans did in chapter 1, and stealing away from him. So he is indicting Job by not naming Job personally, but using illustrations that will come at Job and get him to feel guilty because of his wickedness, because of his sin. Eliphaz is not a godly counselor. He's not a good man. He wants to prove something. He says, affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. In other words, affliction doesn't come by chance, Job. This doesn't sprout from the ground. No. No, seeds have to be sown for affliction to come. And we quote Job 5, verse number 7 all the time. For man is born in the trouble, sparks fly upward, right? We quote it all the time. But the context is specific. The context is specific to Job. And he is born unto trouble. Why? Because he has sown the seeds of wickedness. And just as when you stir up the ambers of a fire and all the sparks fly upward, sure enough, Job, you have trouble because you have sown the seeds of wickedness. This is Eliphaz's counsel. This is how he sympathizes and comforts Job. Now, Job could respond. He could say something. He doesn't interrupt Eliphaz. He lets him speak because he's a kind man. He will speak. We'll see that next week. We'll see how he responds in chapter 6 and chapter 7 to what Eliphaz has to say. And he will respond to Eliphaz, and he will respond to God in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But right now, he says nothing. And so, what he's trying to do is plead with Job. You're a wicked man. Things have got to change. And so, in verses 8 to 16, he begins to preach to Job. Look what it says. But as for me, I would see God, and I would place my cause before God. Look, this is what I would do, Job. I would see God. How does he know Job's not seeking God? What would ever give him the idea that Job was not a man after God's own heart? 
What would ever give him the idea that Job is not sitting there in silence, praying to his God, communing with his God? How does he know that Job is not seeking after the God that he loves and adores? How does he know that? You see, if it was me, Job, I'd seek after God. Evidently, I don't see you seeking after him, so therefore, this is a problem for you. And why you're not seeking God is because of some sin in your life. But I would get that thing right. So he begins to criticize Job as if he would seek God if he lost all that Job lost and experienced the pain that Job experienced. Who does great and unsearchable things? Wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth, sends water on the fields, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Through his preaching to Job, he insinuates that Job is not seeking God. And then he begins to inform Job as to who God is. God is great, God is good, and God is full of grace. That's who God is. And then he says, he frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. So he begins to instruct Job by day, they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. But he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. He insinuates that Job is unrighteous and that he is absolutely hopeless. The reason is because he has sown the seeds of wickedness. Now he has reaped the consequences of his wickedness. He's lost everything. Now remember, this guy is sitting there in excruciating pain, listening to all this. He's the first guy that speaks. Sometimes it's good just to sit there and say nothing and just to silently pray for Job. They don't do that. They were looking for the avenue to, to speak. And once Job spoke, they, they seized the opportunity to share what they believed was his problem. They went to him with a perception, thinking they knew what, what the problem was, without ever hearing the heart of Job in chapter 3. So they could not respond effectively. So it ends with what he presents to Job. He presents to Job the fact that he was being chastised by God. Verse 17 is the only verse in the book of Job quoted in the New Testament. Only verse. Here it is. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He is telling Job, you are being disciplined by God. God is chastising you, Job. So, verse 18. He inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. Listen, if you recognize that God's chastising you because of some secret sin, some heinous sin that you've committed, some wickedness that you're engaged in, if you would just admit that, his hands will heal you. And you'll get relief from all of your pain. 
From six troubles, he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. In other words, if you do this, Job, these are the benefits. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine and you will not be afraid of wild beasts for you will be in in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will know also that your descendants will be many and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like the, like the stacking of grain in its season. Behold this. We have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. Job, this is what we've seen. We've investigated this. This is our conclusion. You're being chastised by the Almighty himself. And if you would just give yourself over to the Almighty and repent of your sin, all these blessings will come your way. You know, protect you and watch over you. This is our conclusion, Job. This is what we've come to. Really? That's it? That's all you could come up with? But that's all they came up with. Now, Job, in his humility, is going to answer Eliphaz. But that's not till next week. So let me tell you or explain to you some principles that will guide you when you help other people during their times of anxiety, distress, and difficulty. Eliphaz, along with Zophar, Bildad, Elihu, show us very clearly what not to say, what not to do. So let me share with you just three principles that will help you this evening. Counsel should never be based on my experience but always on exposition. Counsel should never be based on my vision, but on God's virtues. That's point number one. My experiences really fall short. When I'm trying to help someone else, they don't really care about my experience. But... If I'm dependent upon what God said to me in a dream or a vision, this was his experience. His whole proof is based on what he believes he saw in a dream. And there's so much in Scripture that's against that. You ever heard people say, you know, the Lord told me this. Always say, no, he didn't. When the Lord spoke to me, No, he didn't. He didn't do that. What makes you so special that God's going to speak to you and not to me or to somebody else? What has put you as a part of the triune nature of God that he's going to commune with you and tell me what he says? When the Bible says very clearly that God in the last of these days, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, has spoken to us in his son. God's word is final. 
God's word speaks. It's not what I think I saw when I was asleep, but what I know God said while I was awake is what matters. And God speaks to us through his word. So listen to this. The Bible says, book of Jeremiah. Remember, Israel is about to go into Babylonian captivity. Right in the cusp of, right before they go in. Jeremiah prophesies right before Israel goes into captivity. Verse 25 of Jeremiah 23. God says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsely, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal, the prophet who has a dream, may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters the rock. False prophet said, we had a dream. We had a dream. And it wasn't about captivity. It was about prosperity. We had a dream. God told us in a dream, in a vision. Goes on to say these words, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Because he was going to send them into captivity. He says in verse number 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's I who have done this. But the false prophets would say, No, 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 no. God didn't do that. No, no. God's not that way. How do you know that? Because he spoke to me in a dream. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah says these words. He says, Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, is because they have no light in them. If they don't speak according to the law and the testimony that I have given, they have no light in them. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have a more sure prophetic word. More sure than what? Remember he gives a testimony about how he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he heard the voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he was there. Peter, James, and John, they were all in the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard the voice come down out of heaven. He wanted to build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. He said, but we have a more sure prophetic word. We have something more sure than my experience. Because you see, my experience Okay, cannot be verified. But God's word can be verified. It's verifiable. I could say I had an experience, I had a vision, I had a dream. Who can verify that? God just spoke to me. But God speaks to us through his word. That's why this is the counseling mechanism. This is biblical counseling at its best by taking the word of God, which his testimonies are, are our counselors and speaking this truth because his word is like 
a hammer that shatters the soul. His word is like a fire that purifies the soul. So it does. So Peter would say we have a more sure prophetic word. He goes on to talk about how holy men of God were moved by the Spirit of God as they began to hear the word of God and interpret the word of God. How God spoke to us through holy men of God. You see, whenever you counsel someone, you must always remember that what you say is not nearly important as what God says. So you must use the word of God in your counseling to move them towards maturity in Christ. We'll see you to point number two. Point number one simply is this. Counsel should not be based on the experience of a vision, but on the exposition of God's virtues. Point number two. Counsel should not be based on my perception of your situation or your condition, but on the revelation of Scripture. It should not be based on my observation or my perception of your situation, but based on the revelation of Scripture. So important. Why do people suffer? Why do people go through hard times? Why is there disaster? Why is it people face such horrendous difficulties? How do you answer those questions? You can only answer them through Scripture, not through your experience. So you have to go to the Word of God to show them what God is doing. Because you don't necessarily know what God's doing in their life. But you want to show them what God has said, and then they have to be able to look at their life and say, okay, this is what's happening. For instance, why does God allow disaster to happen to your life? Like it did with Job, right? Well, sometimes God does that to judge us. How do we know that? Genesis 6 with the flood. We understand it? Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. Did he not judge man's sin in Genesis 6 with the, with the worldwide flood and with the destruction of fire coming down with Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. So sometimes we suffer adverse circumstances. Sometimes we suffer tragedy because God is judging sin. Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes God does what he does just simply because he wants to teach us something. Man born blind, John chapter 9. Remember that? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Because the belief was, as it was in Job's day, he's blind because he sinned. Why else would he be blind? And the Lord says, nobody sinned. Has nothing to do with his parents or himself. He was born blind so that the works of God would be accomplished on this day. So everyone would know that Jesus was the Messiah. So he would use the travesty in one man's life to teach the religious establishment that Jesus was the Messiah and everybody else around the pool of Siloam where he would go and wash and be able to see again. Sometimes God allows disaster and suffering and heartache and pain to judge sin. Sometimes he does it to teach us. Sometimes he does it to show us how helpless we are. Think about that. Psalm 107 Psalm 107 says these words, verse number 25. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, 
which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. Do you know that sometimes God allows us to go through horrendous circumstances to show us how helpless we are? Maybe that's what God is doing in your life or your friend's life. To show them they are helpless without God. They need to cry into the Lord. Maybe because God is judging some sin in their life. I don't know that. Maybe God is just helping them realize who he is. So he wants to teach them about who he is. Sometimes he does it just to warn us of impending judgment. Remember Luke chapter 13 about the Tower of Siloam that fell over on 18 people and they all died? They had questions, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Or those who, Galileans who were going to worship the Lord and, and as, as they went into worship that, that uh, Caesar went in and, and mixed their blood with their sacrifices and slaughtered them as they were worshiping God. God forbid. Why did God allow that? What did Christ say? You better Repent or you will likewise perish. He was warning them of impending judgment. You know, God allows disaster. God allows heartache and pain and suffering and affliction. Why? Because he wants to warn you about impending judgment that that comes your way. It's coming. Are you ready? If you don't repent, you're not ready. This is why you use the word of God to help people understand where they're at. When you go on and you, and, you, and you go through the scriptures, you begin to realize that sometimes God just wants to display his glory. He wants to put his glory on display. Romans 11, 33 to 36. You know, everything is from him, through him, to him, to God be the glory forever. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 6. It's all about the glory of God. Sometimes God allows suffering and hardship and disaster because he wants to be put on display in your life and everybody else's life around you. You got to think of those things. Sometimes, according to Ecclesiastes 3, verse number 14, he does what he does so that man will learn to fear him. Fear him. Sometimes he disciplines us that we might grow in our, our likeness to him and to mature us. That's why it's so important to look at the revelation of Scripture and see what God says to help people understand where they're at. And what's going on in their lives? You don't always know based on what you see. Eliphaz did. I have seen this. This is my conclusion. This is what we have investigated. This is our conclusion, Job. You're a wicked man. You've sinned. You're being chastised by God. But we know he wasn't. How do we know that? Job 1 and Job 2. We know this. But this is the conclusion that he comes up with. It's not that there are a variety of other reasons why Job is going through what he's going through. It's just that you're a wicked man and you're reaping the consequences of your sin. And God's chastising you because you have disobedience. Therefore, you're helpless and hopeless until you repent. Get things right. Job knew that he was a sinner. Job knew that there was sin in his life. But he also knew that he didn't commit some great heinous sin that would cause his God to chastise him and discipline him. 
He had no idea what was going on. He didn't. He had no answer. But yet, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So number three. Number one, counsel should not be based on the experience of a vision, but on the exhortation or exposition of virtues. Number two, counsel should not be based on my observation or perception of someone's situation, but on the revelation of Scripture itself. And number three, the problem that people face is not their suffering primarily, but God's sovereignty over their suffering, which you need to draw them toward. God's sovereignty over their suffering. We know the words of Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 13, consider the work of God who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. God has made the day of adversity. God has made the day of prosperity. So when prosperity comes, be happy. And you are. But in the day of adversity, consider. God made that day. And what is God going to teach you in that day? What was God teaching Job? You've heard of the endurance of Job, the patience of Job, how he bore up under all that pressure. I think that part of Job's endurance was being able to bear up under his miserable counselors for as long as he did because he was able to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is that People need to be able to see God's sovereign control over their lives in every situation. Whether it's Isaiah 46, whether it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, whether it's a psalmist in Psalm 119, that God himself is in complete control of everything. The counsel of the Lord shall stand. That God rules over all. And the book of Job is all about God's sovereignty in the suffering of man. How does God rule over all these things? It was Esther Fields who said these words. Things don't just happen to us who love God. They're planned by his own dear hand. Then molded and shaped in time by his clock, things don't just happen. They're planned. We don't just guess on the issues of life. We Christians just rest in the Lord. We are directed by his sovereign will in the light of his holy word. We who love Jesus are walking by faith, not seeing one step that's ahead not doubting one moment what our lot might be, but looking to Jesus instead. We praise our dear Savior for loving us so, for planning each care of our life, then giving us faith to trust him for all, the blessings as well as the strife. Things don't just happen to us who love God, to us who have taken our stand. No matter the lot, the course or the price, things don't just happen. They're planned. And when you counsel people, the one thing they must come to grips with is the fact that your God is a sovereign God who rules over all. He creates a day of adversity as well as a day of prosperity. 
In so doing, he wants to teach you something. Maybe it's to discipline you. Maybe it's to perfect you. Maybe it's to cause you to produce more and more fruit. As John 15 says, when the, 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 the whole illustration is used of the, the vine dresser with the, with the vine, how he prunes the vines. Maybe it's just to, to teach you more about himself. Maybe to show you how helpless you are. Who knows? No one's the same. There's manifold grace for manifold trials. As they come in different shapes and sizes, God is in the process of moving us toward maturity in him, as he did Job. And so with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, men who came to sympathize and to comfort Job, unfortunately, they were unable to do that. And for the next several chapters, we will see more and more how they were unable to do that. And yet Job's response to each of them is remarkable. How he responds to their criticism. How he responds to their judgment upon his life. How he responds to their arrogance. How he responds to how they demean him. All while still in pain. That's what makes it so remarkable. It's not that he's feeling better, getting juiced up, and pain meds are kicking in, and everything is going well, and I, 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 can, I can now listen to you without pain. No, that's not the point. Not at all. All this happens to him amidst the most difficult time of his life. And it's not like his wife is sitting there saying, you know, honey, it's okay, babe. It's all right. I'm with you all the way here, sweetheart. Oh, no, she's nowhere to be found. She's not going to be in the city dump. She's not in the ash heap. Job's alone, he's rejected, he's isolated. Except for three miserable comforters that come around him and drive him further into his misery. Because that's what they are. Yet his response is remarkable. Why? Because he's a God-fearing man, he's an upright man, he's a blameless man, and he turns away from evil. That's why. Doesn't diminish his pain. It doesn't diminish his despair. It doesn't deplete his agony. It's all right there in front of him. He's feeling it every moment of every day for the entire time of the conversation he has with these men. Until one day, God turns it all around. One day. But not on this day. And next week, You'll see how he responds to Eliphaz. And it's quite remarkable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Chance to be in your word. Truly, Lord, you are a great God. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who truly want to counsel others in pain in a way that will honor you. Lord, every one of us knows someone in pain. Every one of us knows people who go through devastating situations and circumstances. And our being there can be such a benefit to them if we are used by you for your purposes. Help us to see how it is we do that in a way that honors your name. May we be truly comforters of souls that are in distress. May we lead them in the path of righteousness. May your word so permeate our lives that we can lead them through 
the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.